Hello and welcome to episode 169 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam. Thank you so much for joining me today. Today's story is from Chatham in Kent, and it's a story of bitterness at the breakdown of a relationship and how those feelings lead to the terrible events we examine today. A huge thank you to one of my biggest supporters, True Crime Nana, for bringing this story to my attention. I'm delighted that this show is sponsored by HelloFresh. HelloFresh makes it easy for you to cook delicious home-cooked meals from scratch. Choose your favourite recipes from a changing weekly menu, and they'll deliver all the fresh, pre-portioned ingredients you need to cook them straight to your door. No planning, no shopping, no food waste. The helping hand you need to cook fresh at home. As I'm still living the Alan Partridge dream in my holiday home for the next couple of days before my move, the ease of cooking quick healthy food and not having to go to the supermarket is, well, it's amazing for me. This week I love the Indian chickpea koftas. And next week, the dinner I'm looking forward to the most is the Korean style rice bowl with caramelised tofu and sesame seeds. Go and check out the menu now. For the simple way to cook fresh, HelloFresh is offering you, as a listener to this podcast, 50% off your first box and 35% off your next three boxes. Just head to hellofresh.co.uk and use the code CRIME to receive 50% off your first box and 35% off the next three. Head to hellofresh.co.uk right now to choose your favourite recipes for your first box. Before we begin, a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, but especially this week's new members of this exclusive club. That's Samantha Bressington, Jack Warren and Dave Reardon, and to two of my most loyal, long-time supporters who've increased their support. That's True Crime Nana, it was great to see you at the live show by the way, and Carol Wood. Thank you so much to all my Patreon supporters, it is super appreciated. And also a big shout out to Tracy Jane, who I chatted to on the Seeing Red podcast Facebook group this week. Great judgement Tracy. It's always fun on the Seeing Red Facebook group. Let's take a quick look at the music we were listening to at the time of today's events, the 10th of September 2011. For once, no Ed Sheeran, can you believe it? The UK number one was Example with Stay Awake, Moves Like Jagger from Maroon 5 and Christine Aguilera was in the US top spot, and in Australia, 21 from Adele was the number one album. In the news this month, following his disqualification in the 100 metres, Jamaica's Usain Bolt ran a season's best 19.40 to win the 200 metres at the World Athletics Championship in South Korea. The US ended its don't ask, don't tell policy, allowing gay men and women to serve openly for the first time. Yup, astonishingly, this was less than 10 years ago. In the UK, the Fixed Term Parliaments Act was passed, requiring general elections to take place at fixed five-year intervals starting with the 7th of May 2015, removing the prerogative of Prime Ministers to select a date. Worked rather well, didn't it? And this was the month of the Gleison Colliery mining accident, when an explosion in a drift mine killed four miners in the South Wales coalfield. Chatham is a town in North Kent, around 30 miles east of London. The town developed around the naval dockyard, which closed in 1984, if you haven't been there, it's a fascinating part of the Thames to discover. Charles Dickens lived here as a boy, as did other all-time greats in their chosen fields, such as Lee Ryan of Blue. Melissa Crook lived with her family in Chatham. 
When she was 16, she met a man called Danai Mohammadi, a Kurdish refugee who moved to the UK when he was 18 in 2005. He worked in factories in Hull before moving to Maidstone in Kent to work in a large bakery, which is where he met Melissa. It was a whirlwind romance, and after meeting in 2009, they moved together to a house in Coventry, married, and eight months later, when Melissa was 18, she gave birth to a son, the couple named Noah. Although marrying and having a child at this young age wasn't what Melissa's mum Amanda and dad Mark wanted for their daughter, it was clear she loved Danai and wanted to be with him, and they knew just where she was and she was safe. It wasn't like she was recklessly running off of him, so she went with their blessing. But in commentary, Danai wasn't at all happy when Melissa had unexpectedly become pregnant. But he said later, Certainly I loved my child, my son. He meant everything to me, and I was very happy. I prayed to God that any harm or disease that came to him be passed on to me, not him. And he even had a tattoo of Noah etched on his arm against his religious beliefs. But the relationship as it is for many young couples was a difficult one, and the issues came to a head one night, which led to a serious incident where the police were called. Melissa told police that her 24-year-old husband came to bed at 11.30pm where, and I quote, For about half an hour he was pestering me for sex and I didn't want to. It started an argument. During the argument, then I became really angry. He sat up in bed and spat in my face. I was disgusted and my reaction was to spit back at him. After spitting at him, then I punched me to the head. I swung back. I don't know if the punch connected or not. Danai then punched me a further four or five times. This violence was the final straw for Melissa, who called her mum, who came to collect her daughter and grandson the next morning, and take them home to Chatham. Melissa told police, Now our relationship is over. Although I do still love Danai, my son comes first, and I can't accept this kind of behaviour in front of him. Throughout most of our relationship, Danai has made all the decisions and I've allowed him to. Since our son was born though, I've stood up to him more and more. Danai would later say that this was the only time he'd ever used physical violence against Melissa and asked how he felt about it, he replied, I feel bad, I feel ashamed. And although he spoke of the couple getting back together, Melissa was adamant that she wanted to divorce. A few months later, Danai met somebody else in Coventry Emma Smith. Romantically, they met at a bus stop, they exchanged numbers, and after an extended courtship of almost four days, they were sleeping together and an item. From that day in August, they saw each other every day. But the bitterness between Melissa and Danai rubbed off on Emma. Without sounding too patronising, she wasn't the sharpest tool in the box, and she was easily influenced. And sadly, she felt unable to keep her thoughts to herself and started to message Melissa some pretty unpleasant stuff such as He's wasted five years with you. Your parents didn't want you. You're nothing. You don't deserve to be happy. And he taunted her about her weight, for being boring in bed. And in one message said Enjoy your life with no husband, no house, no money, you gold digger. After Melissa replied with a few choice comments on Facebook, Emma replied saying, You're an effing thin ice with me. By September that year, the divorce was close to being completed. On the evening of the 9th of September, 
Melissa had been chatting with her half-sister on the phone. They were close and talked and saw each other a lot. Melissa had been in a really good mood during the two-hour conversation, confirming that her husband had finally signed the divorce papers. The estranged couple and Noah had enjoyed a fun day at the zoo, taken lots of pictures and he had signed the papers last thing. Melissa was cheerful, upbeat and full of hope for the future. She even changed her Facebook profile to divorced and wrote in her about me section, my fairy tale didn't work but second time lucky hey, it's time to sort out my life, no more moping around. And she'd also been through her wardrobe that day in preparation for an interview in Chatham, a job interview she had the following week. Things appeared to be heading the right way for Melissa. Meanwhile in Coventry, Danai was still with his new girlfriend Emma Smith, changing his Facebook status to in a relationship. But this relationship had caused issues not just with Melissa, but also with his brother, who had argued with him against dating other girls when he was still married. He had a lodger in his house too, who had seen Denai taking tablets, which he'd explained to him were for his nerves and anxiety after the split. The lodger sometimes heard Denai arguing with Melissa on the phone, as he still wanted that sense of control over his wife and his son's life. For example, telling Melissa that he didn't want to work past a certain time because he wanted Noah to be in bed. On the night of the 9th of September, Denai Mohammadi phoned his wife after texting, Hi Mel, I want to speak to Noah before he sleeps. Please, I miss him. He then had a four-minute conversation with Noah before the little boy went to sleep. It was at 2.30am the next morning that neighbours saw and heard the blaze that had broken out at the Crook's house in Chatham. The fire started at the bottom of the stairs and this cut off the way out for Melissa, Noah, her brother and parents who were sleeping upstairs. The noise and heat were terrifying as the flames engulfed the house. Melissa's brother, Bowden, jumped out of a front bedroom window, causing fractures to his feet and hands. He then tried to get back inside to rescue his mum Amanda, who eventually managed to escape on a flat roof at the back of the house and then down a ladder that was brought by a neighbour. He helped smash Melissa's window and was heard shouting, Give me the baby! Amanda's husband, Mark, meanwhile, tried to exit the fire the same way as his wife, but he got stuck in the window frame just as a fireball blew the windows out. His wife had to witness the terrible sight of seeing the bottom half of her husband burning, unable to move. He was eventually able to make it out of the house, but he had suffered the most terrible injuries, 80% burns to his body. Though taken to a specialist unit, he never regained consciousness, and Mark died six days later. Tragically, firefighters also found the body of 20-year-old Melissa Crook by the window of an upstairs bedroom, with her son Noah's body wrapped in a cot quilt at her feet. Fire investigator Mike Jackson later said, She had clearly made an attempt to rescue the baby. She had taken the baby from the cot while trying to get out of the room. As we've heard before in this podcast, a fire can quickly cause so much damage and devastation. Large numbers of flowers and notes were left at the scene, remembering Melissa, her son Noah, and her dad Mark. Mark's wife Amanda wrote her own emotional tribute, 
along with her surviving children, Bowden, Blake and Charlotte, another close family. They said that Mark, her grandfather of five, was loved by all who knew him, a gentle giant adding, he would do anything for anyone. Noah was, they said, a little darling who loved and adored his mum. He had little chubby cheeks and the brightest of eyes which lit up with each smile. He was a contented, happy little boy with an infectious giggle. And as for Melissa, she was a beautiful girl with a beautiful heart. Two policemen set off to see Denai the next morning and inform him as next of kin that his wife and son were dead. But staggeringly, before they even arrived in Coventry, Danai was a suspect on three counts of murder. The automatic number plate recognition cameras had snapped his car travelling from Coventry to Chatham shortly before the fire in the early hours of the 10th of September 2011 and heading back to Coventry shortly after 2.30am. Local officers joined the two and they broke into his house, but he was at work. Officers found a note with Melissa's phone number written on it, along with the numbers for her dad, mum, home and grandma. On the opposite side of the paper he had written, Where can I get some help for my anger management? My wife has left me. Can you help me get some counselling to help me repair my marriage? I'm very tired and unhappy. There was also a piece of paper in an envelope with the postcode for his friend Marmud's flat in Fernhill Road, Maidstone, written on them. More of Marmud later. Detectives headed to the car dealership where Danny Mohammadi worked and he was arrested on suspicion of arson and murder. Mohammadi was shocked and surprised and categorically denied any involvement in the murders. Initially, he said, what has happened to them? He was asked to remain calm, which he did, showing no signs of upset or emotion. And he didn't seem to quite register what had happened when they got to the police station. And it took him a while to, well, it appeared to take him a while, to understand the concept of what murder was. According to the police, he then became upset and said, You may as well throw me in a cell and lock me away for life. I can't live without them. He looked up at the ceiling, took a deep breath, wiped his eyes and said, I will not cry any more now. Within a few days, his girlfriend of 27 days, Emma Smith, and his bouncer pal from Maidstone, Farhood Mahmood, were both arrested. Smith put in a woefully poor effort of an alibi first, saying she'd been in Coventry with him the night of the fire, and then she changed it to saying she had gone to Kent, but she had no idea that the two men were planning arson. In conversations with the three suspects, detectives grew to believe that the motive for murder was a divorce, and that Mohammadi was encouraged and goaded by his new girlfriend to carry out the attack. As for Mahmoud, they believed that simply he was paid by Mohammadi to help them. They pieced together the events of what had happened. They believed that on the evening of September the 9th, Mohammadi's lodger got home at about 4.30pm and the pair chopped down a tree in the front garden. Mohammadi then asked him if he could borrow the sprayer for his allotment, as his brother had some weeds he wanted to kill. So the lodger showed him where he kept it, talked him through the correct way to use it. It was a big piece of kit, taking more than 150 pumps to empty it. After this, Mohammadi had the call with Melissa and Noah we heard about earlier, ending the call by saying goodnight to Noah and calling him his lovely boy. 
When the call was over, Mohammadi got the sprayer, wrapped it in a blanket, and left the house just before 7pm, placing the sprayer in the boot of his Renault Megane, saying he was off out for a couple of hours. He then picked up his girlfriend Smith, and the couple drove to Mahmoud's flat, where they then took Mahmoud's car to drive to Melissa's house, stopping en route at a petrol station to fill up the sprayer with 7 litres of fuel. They used the garden spray to spread the fuel inside the letterbox of the house, including the bottom of the stairs, to ensure that nobody could escape via this route. And when it was finished, they went back to Mahmoud's house before the couple headed back to Coventry. According to Smith, Mohammedy was in a fine mood on the drive home, singing along to Craig David songs. There were a number of people who knew Mohammedy who provided evidence to support this theory. The owner of the garage where Mohammadi worked explained how Mohammadi had described the fire to one of his employees the day before it even happened. He said that Melissa and Noah had been hurt in a fire and that he was going to go back and finish it off tonight. Then I was very upset and wasn't behaving normally. When workmates asked if he'd anything to do with the fire, he said maybe and he smirked before explaining that he was going to finish the job. But Mohammadi denied this. He had a different story. He told detectives the man they should be looking for was one who had threatened to harm his family, kidnap Noah and burn down the house in Chatham and had asked for £5,000 to prevent this from happening. He said he was asked to bring the money, in cash of course, to a meeting place earlier in the month but he hadn't gone. He told detectives how he'd received a handwritten letter which read, and I quote, that it's not a game, to bring that money with me and don't lose the chance otherwise serious things will happen and then I will be responsible for it. He claimed he'd also received a series of four phone calls from the would-be arsonist, but he'd chosen not to go to the police, although he had told Melissa, who he said, had begged him not to go to the police. And it was this blackmailer he'd been to see at 2am on the night of the fire and taking the bouncer pal Mahmoud as a protection. That's where he'd been, not setting fire to the Crook family home in Chatham. The police didn't believe him, and he was charged with murder. The trial of the three took place at Maidstone Crown Court, and as well as the clearly sad nature of the proceedings, as the family and friends of Melissa, Noah and Mark had to relive the events leading to their deaths, it was also a strange affair in many ways. As Mohammadi said at one stage it was his destiny that his wife and son died in a fire. He added, It seems a custom in this country that when a child dies the police go and arrest the parents of that child. There's no morals, no humanity in them. Of course the jury did not believe his completely implausible alibi or the evidence presented by his girlfriend Eva Smith and the tough guy Bouncer chose not to give evidence. Mohammadi and Mahmoud were each found guilty of three counts of murder and two counts of attempted murder in relation to Melissa's mum and brother Bodan. Both were sentenced to life in prison, where Mohammadi must serve a minimum of 38 years and Mahmoud at least 34 years. 22-year-old Smith was convicted of three counts of manslaughter but cleared of murder and attempted murder following the six-week trial. She's in prison for 15 years. Addressing Mohammadi and Mahmoud, Mr Justice Sweeney said that they'd been convicted on overwhelming evidence. 
No one who heard the evidence in this case will ever forget Mrs Crook's description of how as he tried to escape, her husband became stuck in the bedroom window and how unable to extricate himself, she had to stand and watch as his lower half was burned. The judge said that as Melissa Crook and Noah were trapped by the flames, their last moments must have been of abject terror. It's no thanks to you that Amanda Crook and Bowden Crook escaped the fate that you intended for them. Each suffered significant injuries. The effects, whether physical or mental, they are still clearly suffering from today, he added. The judge told Smith that although she was not the principal figure, she was a joint perpetrator in the common venture to burn the house. And like both Mohammedi and Mahmoud, Smith had not shown a spark of genuine remorse for her actions. Speaking afterwards, Amanda Crook told how she felt sick when she learned that Danai Mohammadi was suspected of starting the fire that killed three generations of her family and that the trial would not bring closure for them. She said, we weren't just anyone, we were family. And the fact that he did it to his wife and his own child and his father-in-law, he's taken away our whole lives just because of his greed. And that's all it was, it was greed. There was no reason to do what he did. So what do you make of what we've heard today? A shocking story, isn't it? I always find arson particularly terrible, as it seems such a cowardly way to carry out an attack in the middle of the night and then flee the scene. And if you've ever seen a fire in a house, you will know just how terrifying it is, with the noise, the smell and the heat. And then the next day when the fire is out, and the shell of the house stands empty, with none of the terror of the night before visible, people just standing around, their eyes drawn to the empty house. And poor Noah, lost with his whole life in front of him, and of course Melissa and her dad too. Through no fault of their own, they lost their lives, and for what? It's hard to fathom, really, why Mohammedi did this. And the premeditated nature of the attack telling work colleagues beforehand. Did he not almost turn back when he was driving to Maidstone and again when driving to the house in Chatham? He must have done, he must have thought about reconsidering. And to be standing outside the door pumping fuel through the letterbox in the dead of night and hearing the noise and smelling the fuel with his own son in the house who he'd spoken to lovingly just hours earlier I think that like me, you have to have not a jot of sympathy for him as he lies in his prison cell as you listen to this. And nor the other two, frankly. It's hard to have any sympathy for the money-grabbing bouncer Mahmood and even for the somewhat basic Smith. Our sympathies, of course, lie with Amanda and Bowden Crook and their wider family and friends. You just hope that they may be able to recover enough to gain some sort of pleasure from the rest of their lives. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK True Crime, please head to the UK True Crime Facebook group. And to support the show, please head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime, where there are almost 40 bonus episodes and other exclusive content. So that is all from me for this week. So until we speak again very soon, next week to be more, as a colleague of mine at work says, Pacific. Take it easy, and most of all, do stay classy. Cheerio.